Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Grace Church. My name is Clint Humphrey. I'm a newcomer here. Uh, I'm actually a senior pastor here, but it's great to be with you all. We've gathered together to boast in the Lord together. That's what we're doing this morning. And as we start off, uh, just a few announcements just by way of family news. I'm going to have Michael Fontanelli come and share some of the announcements. So the first one is just we want to praise God and congratulate the two weddings that occurred yesterday for the Holler and Knight, Madison and Corbin, as well as Sovereign Shields, Petra and Peter. So we could be praising God for his mercies for the weddings yesterday. Um, another announcement would be online giving. There's an opportunity to give. There's some envelopes in front of you and a box at the back that you could donate or send an e-transfer to giving at calvarygrace.ca. And last, you could also see another QR code there to scan to give online. Uh, this Wednesday, July 12, 7 p.m., we will have our Bucket Theology series. So it's an intro to systematic theology just downstairs in the fellowship hall. Pastor Clint will be leading that every Wednesday throughout the summer. And it'll be a good way to have proper categories or buckets to know who God is. Last but not least, next Sunday, uh, July 16th, 9.30 a.m., outside in the courtyard, we will have our Stampede Breakfast. It'll be a great opportunity to invite family and friends and even welcome and extend hospitality to our Bridgeland neighbors. So 9.30 a.m., next Sunday, Stampede Breakfast. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Well, our call to worship this morning, as we want to boast in the Lord, comes from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3. This is our call to worship. So this is a, a summons for all of us to worship the true and living God. We, we have the Word of God that summons us and calls us to give our attention fully to the Lord. So hear this call to worship. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. That's what we're going to do. And I invite you to pray with me before we sing together. Almighty God, we approach you now and we realize that you are worthy to be praised, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, and he is the reason we are here, even through his person and work, through his life and death and resurrection, his current praying intercession, his soon return to judge the living and the dead. And we pray that, Father, your Holy Spirit would meet us now, even as we seek to sing your praises, to hear your word, and to go forth in faith and in loving obedience. Lord, we ask that you would meet us now with power, that you would glorify your own name, for it is in your name that we boast, and it is in your name that we pray. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Please stand as we worship together through song. Please rise. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 34. And in verse 4, I want us to read as we prepare ourselves to confess our sins, which is something we do every Sunday 
It's a, it's a chance to be honest before God. And in Psalm 34 and verse 4, it says this, I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Now this is where then we, we need to own up to all of our fears. Our fears of death, our fears of insecurity, all of our fears of, of being left out, of being put outside of the in crowd, all of our fears on missing out on pleasure, on missing out on wealth, on missing out on health, on missing out on everything else, all of these fears. And because of those fears, we actually very often show our unbelief in God and we actually sin against Him. We do things that we shouldn't do. Or we fail to do the things that we ought to do. And this is an opportunity now to own up to that. To own that before God. That's what confession is. It is actually saying to God, yes, I agree, I have failed to do what I was supposed to do, or I have transgressed and done things that I ought not to have done. So I want you to just bow your heads and silently confess your sins to God, and then I'm going to pray. Oh, holy God, we wish to be still and to know that you are God. We want to acknowledge and own up to the fact that we have not believed in you as we ought. And we have actually been afraid of so many things. Afraid of the future. Afraid of people. Afraid of missing out. Afraid and filled with such fear and anxiety and insecurity, and yet we have not feared you. O oh Lord, we ask your forgiveness for our sins. We own them. We want to own them. We have transgressed against your law in so many ways. Specific ways. And in ways that we have not even realized we've transgressed. O oh Lord, forgive us our sins. We ask as well, Lord, that in forgiving us of our sins, you would grant us a true turning away from our sin that we would walk and follow you in a new, a renewed obedience. O oh Lord, make this so in each life today that's gathered here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at verse 5, you have then this, this beautiful picture of the one who has been assured of pardon, the forgiveness of sins from God. Verse 5 says this, Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that is true? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you believe in His finished work on the cross, and you believe that the blood that He shed actually did atone for your sins, then you have the hope, even the promise as you trust in Him, you have the hope that your sins have been pardoned. Past, 
present and future. And therefore, you shall never be ashamed before God. And that's what matters. Not worrying about being shamed by the world, but not being ashamed before God that you can look upon the Lord and you will know that you can stand before Him unashamed. That is then the great triumph of the Gospel. And so my hope is that you will know this assurance of pardon. That you will be able to consider this yourselves. And in view of that, we actually confess even this assurance of pardon through our confession of faith, through our congregational confession of faith. And we always have a little section of a, of a creed or one of our confessions when we have our opening liturgy. And I'm taking this morning's confession from the statement that every member owns up to in this church and it is statement 10 on justification. And it reads thus, We believe that God freely justifies the ungodly by faith alone apart from works, pardoning their sins and reckoning them as righteous and acceptable in His presence. We believe that faith is thus the sole instrument by which we as sinners are united to Christ whose perfect righteousness and satisfaction for sins is alone the ground of our acceptance with God. We believe that the righteousness by which we come into right standing with God is accomplished for us outside of ourselves and is imputed to us. Let me tell you, friends, that is good news because it is not based on what you have to do or your performance or your spirituality. It is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So then you can know you have a pardon, not because you feel like you have cleaned up your act, but you can know you can have a pardon because of the pure grace of Jesus Christ and all that He has accomplished. And that is why we're here. We're not playing church. We are boasting in the Lord together. That's what we're doing. And so to that end, I invite you to stand as we continue to rejoice and sing together. Please rise. I'm going to pray. And it's just a treat for me to be back and be able to offer a pastoral prayer. And then afterwards, Pastor Josh, who's not the pastor here anymore, but he's Pastor Josh at Grace Cochran Church. He's going to come and preach. And uh, we're not having our formal send-off for him uh, today. Uh, probably we're going to have it just be- just at the end of August before he takes up his formal duties in Cochrane. But it is, a, it is a delight to be able to have Josh preach to us, and he's going to read Scripture, and he'll make you stand when he does that. But I'm going I'm to pray now, and I just ask you to join me in prayer at this time. Your goodness will lead us home, Lord, and we come to you now, and we ask even that as you draw us to yourself, you would give us that hope even as we pray to you. We want to taste and see that you're good, and so we thank you that we have even your word given to us, and as we're going to hear in a few moments, even your word preached to us 
So we ask that you would be preparing our hearts right now for the reception of your word. We thank you that this is a church that heralds your word, and we thank you that you have not left this city without gospel witness. Oh Lord, our sins are many in this city. Even during this Stampede Week, we recognize the sins of Stampede. There are many, and we ask that you would have mercy even on the wickedness that goes on during this Stampede Week. Lord, we deserve your judgment, but we pray that there would be mercy toward the undeserving. We do thank you even though, even in this week, in this city, we thank you even for good things, for the reminder of good things, the opportunity even in this festival that's going on in the city, the, the reminder that there are good things to be had, the goodness of your creation, the goodness of time spent with friends and family, the goodness even of this weather and all that you have provided. Lord, I ask that you would give comfort to the people of this church. There are still many who suffer, who suffer often in silence, who suffer physical ailments, who suffer estrangement from family, who suffer even difficulties at work, who suffer even the ways that they're being treated by people in their circles of influence as they seek to hold fast to the gospel and yet are viewed as not only fools, but viewed as dangerous. Lord, we know that if you accept us, we can, we can put up with all of the opposition of the world. So we thank you that you are a welcoming God, that you accept us in the beloved. And that's the only inclusion that we really care about, to be included among your people. Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us to grow in strength, in resolve, in discernment, in spiritual fruitfulness, that you would help us then to have a clear sense that our boast is not in ourselves, our boast is not in our pursuit of political power, our boast is not in our wealth or our health, but our boast is in you alone. But help us to be boasters in you. Help us to open up our mouths and boast in all that you have done and are willing to do and are planning to do and promising to do. Help us to be more confident in all that you are doing. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we have not talked about your greatness and your purposes and your promises. Give us a greater faith and a greater confidence to proclaim your triumph even over death, even your lordship over all of creation. Lord, help us to herald that. And we thank you, Lord, that even in this city and in this country, the gospel can still be preached freely. We thank you for that great privilege, that gift that we don't deserve. We do pray that you would thwart the efforts of governments and the plots of men to stop the spread of the gospel. We ask, Lord, for your mercy in, not, in actually refraining from the judgment that is due to this land. And so we pray that your gospel would go out, even this week, even during Stampede Week, that your gospel would go out and that people would repent of their sins. That it could be even today or this week that people could turn away from their self-focused, godless ways and they would repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and have the hope of eternal security in heaven. We know you're able to do that. We ask that you would. Use us, Lord. Use us as ambassadors of Christ. And even now as we seek to hear your word, 
I pray that you would empower your servant, Josh, that as he opens your word, it would come to us not merely as the words of men, but as it truly is, the very word of God. Match your word in the scriptures, even with the work of the Holy Spirit, and pierce our hearts now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to invite you to stand as Pastor Josh will read to us from God's Word. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I was talking with a few people at the wedding yesterday, and as Clint just alluded to a few minutes ago, said, I'm no longer your pastor, so you don't have to call me Pastor Josh if you don't want, and you no longer have to submit to me as your pastor, but you do have to submit to the Word, as we all do. I'm going to be looking at this morning Paul's prayer to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 11, but we're going to focus mainly on verses 3 through 11 this morning. But let's begin, and let's hear together the living and active Word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I ask now that as we hear your word, that we would do just that, that we would hear it and that we would obey it, that you would encourage your people here today, that our koinonia would be strengthened kindled afresh. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I ask now that you would help me, you would keep a guard over the door of my mouth, that I would not sin against you, but speak what is true and needful for these people here today. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this pulpit feels strangely familiar and yet foreign at the same time. It's been a while since we've been here, and one of the questions that me and my family have been receiving regularly, it's a common question we put out there, is what do you think, or what do you feel? What are you feeling? Specifically, what do you feel about the ministry ahead of you in Cochrane? As we, before we candidated, before the vote took place, it was what do you feel about even the prospect of that? And at this point, I believe that 
Julie and I, we can honestly answer with a clear conscience that we feel excited. We're excited. It's exciting to see the gospel advancing in Alberta. We pray for these things, right? We pray for it, that the gospel would advance. And so the fact that we have an opportunity to partner in the gospel with another church that loves Christ and his word is exciting. And we think that there's a good fit for us in Cochrane. Doctrinally, there's alignment there. Ecclesiologically, there's alignment. And as an added bonus, the great thing is that Cochrane is not that far away. And so we hope that we can still rub shoulders with a few of you now and again. I hope that even our two churches continue to maintain even a partnership in the gospel together moving forward. We feel gratitude and joy in the Lord for the saints at Grace Cochrane. Many of you know them. They're great people. They're, they're people loved by the Lord. They're people who have welcomed and received me and my family over these last number of months. And I'm confident that as time goes on, our love for them will grow. At the same time, when people ask us how we feel, just very honestly, we say, we're actually pretty sad. We're pretty sad. Bittersweet, I guess, is the cliche term, right? It's bittersweet. To be honest, this past week is really, the, I think, the first week that it's sunk in that I'm actually no longer one of the pastors of Calvary Grace Church and all that that entails. Uh, the quality of gospel friendship and fellowship that we've enjoyed with you folks here, these, these people right here in front of me, it's actually going to change. There's going to be a change to it. It's already changed. That fellowship that began in 2018 when Julie and I arrived here after returning from seminary, and so this sadness that Julie and I feel, our affection for you, that the difficulty that there is in moving on, even while we're excited, all of this is actually a good sign. It would not be any good if a pastor was leaving a church saying, see you later, suckas, right? It's a good sign. It means that God is at work in you. It means that there's something, what I would say, truly supernatural about the friendship and fellowship we enjoy with you folks. There's a sweetness to the society of saints in Christ Jesus to you folks. And so to leave this fellowship here is to lose something precious, even though we're gaining something great in Cochrane. And so when I was thinking about what to preach, which is, this is likely going to be my last sermon here for a while anyway, I hope we can continue doing a little bit of pulpit sharing over the years, but this passage in Philippians immediately came to mind. It's a passage we use in our gospel partnership classes. It's a passage familiar to many of you. There's verses in here that are near and dear to many of you that have strengthened and served even as a ballast for your soul. These Philippians, this Philippian congregation, they were very near and dear to the Apostle Paul. He loved them. He longed to be with them. You have to remember Paul here, is he's, a, he's in prison. And he wants to return and to be with the Philippians because he loves them. He yearns for them, even with the affection of Christ Jesus himself. These weren't just people. These were God's people. And so when Paul thought of the Philippian church, he didn't just have abstract people in mind. He had faces and names that he longed to be with. People that he saw converted to faith in Christ when Paul planted this church. People that he saw grow in godliness. And so as your names and faces came to mind this week, Paul's thoughts and his feelings really resonated. 
And so I'm basically here this morning to be an echo chamber of the Apostle Paul to express what I would say are fitting feelings for you, my faithful friends. That's what I want to do this morning. It's very simple. To express what are fitting feelings for you, my faithful friends. And my hope in all of this is that primarily you'll be encouraged. You'll be strengthened in your faith and that even your fellowship here would be strengthened and our fellowship between our two churches might even be strengthened moving forward. What thoughts and feelings come to mind when I think of you, Calvary Grace Church? Well, exactly what the Apostle Paul thought of the Philippians and felt for the Philippians. Gratitude to God, confidence in the Lord, and an eagerness to pray. Gratitude to God, confidence in the Lord, and an eagerness to pray for your continued growth. And so this is a little bit of a, maybe a bit of a feely sermon. A little bit of a feely sermon. And you'll see actually, I think from the text, why it's right to preach in this way. It's right to express our affections for one another. It's a sermon not designed to flatter. I'm not one to spew sentimental goo. Anybody that knows me knows I can't stand sentimental type things. So I'm not here to spew sentimental goo. But there's an objective basis to my thanksgiving. There's an objective basis to why I think and feel, and I think many of these thoughts and feelings, my wife Julie would echo the same about you. It's a sermon then that's actually designed to give honor where honor is due. First to the Lord and then to you. That's what I want to do this morning. And so Paul's prayer and encouragement really then give me words to express these fitting feelings for you, my faithful friends. Now maybe you're nervous about all this talk of feeling. Remind people, and we're going to see that knowledge and the mind is important. Paul shows us his mind. He shows us some rich theology even in this passage. He's persuaded, intellectually convinced. But Paul also cracks open his sternum, so to speak, and lets us see his affections, his heart for these Philippians. So we've got rigorous logic, and we've also got deep affection. I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said this about feelings. He said, I regard it as a great part of my calling in the ministry to emphasize the priority of the mind and the intellect in connection with the faith. But though I maintain that, I am equally ready to assert that the feelings, the emotions, the sensibilities obviously are of vital importance. We have been made in such a way that they play a dominant part in our makeup. Indeed, I suppose that one of the greatest problems in our life in this world not only for Christians, but for all people, is the right handling of emotions. So what do I think and feel about you, my faithful friends? What's fitting? Well, first, I feel joyful thanks to God for you. See that there in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You see here, Paul's relationships extended primarily in two different directions. First, we can think vertically. Paul is giving thanks to the one he refers to as my God. My God. Paul is a Christian. Paul is one who can, with a clear conscience, say, God is my God. I'm in covenant with him. He's made a covenant to save me. That's the most important relationship that you need to settle here today if you haven't. 
Can you, with a clear conscience, like the Apostle Paul, refer to God as my God? Do you have such free access to God that you can go directly to him in prayer? Well, the way to determine if that's true for you or not is not based on your feeling about, well, I I feel like God's okay with me. I feel like God would say, I'm my God. You're You're my people. This relationship isn't based on feeling, but on knowing and believing the truth as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. The only way to address God as my God is to trust in Jesus Christ, his son. That's the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. You don't have the free access to call upon God until you have repented of your sins and trusted in his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to save sinners like you. Now, the amazing thing is that when God becomes our God, his people also become our people. Paul talked earlier and said, refer to these Christians as saints in Christ Jesus. So if your faith is in Christ, you are united to him, and that means you're also united to all those who also have faith in Christ. That's the church. And Paul gives thanks to God whenever he remembers these people, these saints in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters who share a common faith, who share a common freedom to call upon God as their God. Now, if you notice here, Paul is one who's remembering. So as I said, we see here Paul's mind at work as well as his heart. Paul's remembering certain things about this congregation. When he prays about them, he's calling to mind certain things about them. And I want you to notice, and I think it's profitable to notice, Paul's disciplined memory. Paul is actually very disciplined in what he chooses to bring to mind. Paul gives thanks to God when he remembers these people. He doesn't overlook sin in the church. Paul's going to address issues of disunity, discontentment, different sins. He's going to address them. But the first thing Paul thinks about when he thinks about these Philippians is the work that God has done for them. And so he's moved to gratitude. What do you dredge up from your memory bank when you think about these people? People next to you. What do you pull up from the memory bank? Are you... Do you immediately recall their failures, their failures to come through for you, or how far from perfection they are? Or is it that you recall the fellowship that you share with these people in Christ? Is that where you go first and foremost? See, that's mature thinking. And I trust and know that your fellowship with one another will be sweetened, it will be deepened, and your joy for one another will increase if you will discipline your mind, if you will ask God to give you a disciplined memory in what you choose to recall about the people here among you. Not first their failures, but God's work in them. The fact that they share, that they are partakers of the same grace That they can call upon God as their Father and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and follow Him as their Lord. That's the fundamental identity that we share as believers. And so Paul gives thanks for them. He gives thanks to them because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Certainly, their partnership began when they believed, 
when the Spirit of God converted them to faith in Christ from that first day until now. See, churches are not just social groups. We're not just like the Lions Club. We're not just like, there's all sorts of, you can go down to the Stampede, there's all sorts of social groups you can sign up for. We're not a social group. We're a covenant community who band together and boast in the gospel. That's what we're about. The gospel. The gospel, which is primarily a message, which is literally good news. That's what we're about. Making a good announcement in a really bad and dark world. And I praise God that he's kept our koinonia, our partnership, our fellowship, centered on and about this gospel. I thank God that you're a church who has partnered to make it known that God is holy. I give thanks to the pastors here for preaching faithfully from the scriptures the holiness of God. I I thank God that we are committed to calling out sin, even confessing it privately and publicly. That we recognize that we are sinful, deserving of eternal judgment. That we are gospel people who point to the solution and the only solution for our sin and the judgment we deserve. Namely, that God sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life as a man in obedience to his father who willingly went to the cross, and on that cross he bore the, the full wrath of God that sinners deserve, and that he was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, a real historical event happened, and Jesus rose from the dead. And then he ascended 40 days later, and he is seated right now at the right hand of God, interceding for all those who believe in him. That's the gospel. That we stand forgiven set free from the power of sin, accepted by God. When God sees us in his Son, he doesn't see a sinner-deserving judgment. If you've believed in Jesus, he sees the perfection of his Son. That's the message I know you've been rehearsing to yourself. It's the message that by God's grace, he's kept this fellowship and our friendship rooted in We rally around this news. It's amazing news because these blessings could never be achieved by us. You couldn't do a thing to save yourself. They're free gifts received through faith alone and Christ alone. This is the gospel and this is the message we're about. This is the fellowship that we share. And it's a persevering partnership. Don't take for granted the fact that the people sitting beside you haven't just up and walked away. Our culture is not known for a partnership that is described here from the first day until now. We're an easy out culture. Divorce in 15 minutes or your money back. That's the kind of culture that we live in. And so there's something truly supernatural, evidence of God's work in you, in the fact that you have persevered in the gospel from the first day until now. And I pray that that would continue. So when you come to mind and, when I, and what I feel about you is that I thank God for you. I thank God for your persevering partnership in the gospel. There's no better thing to rally around 
than the gospel. And so I urge you to continue in this same gospel current to maintain your commitment, the gospel partners here, to maintain your covenant commitments to be people who promote the gospel and protect the gospel and not to be distracted by all sorts of other things. There's all kinds of other pursuits, many of which can be good, but none of which can be ultimate. I feel joy and gratitude to God because of your partnership in the gospel. That's first. Second, when I think and think of you, when I remember you, I think and feel confidence in the Lord for your future. Confidence in the Lord about your future. If you look there at verse 6, which is undoubtedly one of people's favorite verses in all the scriptures, you see there that Paul was very confident that the Philippians would reach the day of Christ. That is, the day when Christ returns. And on that day, God would finish the good work that he began when he saved them. Look there in verse 6. This is what I echo. This is my my confidence that I echo. Verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from God. So any good that you've enjoyed in this fellowship, if if you've enjoyed any good, any sweetness, any joy, anything worth celebrating, if you've enjoyed anything from my ministry to you, if you've enjoyed anything in terms of gospel friendship from my wife, Julie, if I've enjoyed anything good from you folks, it owes to God. He is the one who begins the good work. And the promise here Paul puts for us is you can be confident he's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. This isn't sentiment. Paul's not sentimental. Yes, he's affectionate. But Paul's thinking here. He's persuaded. He's convinced even intellectually, because of what he knows is true of God based on what is revealed in his word. Paul is certain about their future. He's, he's confident because he knows the Lord is faithful to all his promises. He keeps covenant. He never leaves or forsakes you. If you're his people, if you are in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, he's not going to leave you or forsake you. He is your God now and forevermore. And he's begun a good work in you. And the guarantee is that he's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. He's not going to get you 95% of the way there. He'll finish the work. So brothers and sisters, feed your soul by remembering the faithfulness of God. Paul also stated his confidence because of what he knows about God, but what he also sees happening He sees the evidence of God's work in these people. It's it's very evident. God begins a good work in us, and that shows itself over time. True believers bear fruit, which is why Paul says there in verse 7, his objective basis for thinking and feeling, he says, it is right. It's right. It's fitting. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, Paul carries the Philippian church in his heart. Even while he's in prison, miles away, the Philippians are near and dear to him because they were partakers with him of grace. Certainly the grace of salvation, but what he has in mind here is the grace of participation in suffering for the gospel. In a ministry of suffering, 
to defend and confirm the gospel, even while Paul was in prison. Now, when you think about prison, what Paul endured at that time, don't be thinking about, you know, Martha Stewart under house arrest. That, that, that's not prison. It, it's not tax-funded prison where you get TVs and, oh, well, you know, I go to prison, I guess I can go take a few educational courses and end up with my PhD at the end of it. No, no, no. That's not the prison that Paul was enduring. He was ready to stand trial. He was imprisoned for his faith, for the gospel. And in those days, prisoners depended on their friends and family for the most basic needs, food, water, clothing. And so Paul gives thanks to God and says, I'm actually confident that God's going to complete the work because I see God's grace at work in you in your generosity in supporting me in my ministry. The Philippians sent a care package with a man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus brought money and other resources for Paul in order to provide for his just very physical needs to keep Paul alive. A ministry of mercy. And you can imagine the stigma that those people in Philippi, which was a Roman colony, they were very proud about being Roman people, you can imagine the stigma then that this congregation of people had when people found out, oh, you're supporting that guy, Paul. He's an enemy of the state. He's in prison. He's awaiting trial. You can imagine the stigma that they had for partaking in this grace of ministry. But God's good work in them was demonstrated in the fact that they were unashamed of the gospel. They were unashamed and willing to bear the social stigma of supporting the Apostle Paul and alongside him defending, doing the work of apologetics, defending the truth of the gospel, confirming it by both word and action. Brothers and sisters, I see much of that same kind of partaking in grace among you. Evidence of God's work. And this then gives me confidence to say, I see God at work in you now which gives me confidence that God is going to finish that work in the future. He's going to get you all the way to the day of Christ. If it weren't for your encouragement to me and to my family, quite honestly, I might have quit pastoring a couple years ago. Probably all the pastors would have, to be quite honest. I might have quit pastoring when the vote in Olds didn't go through. You are partakers of grace with us through your encouragement. I haven't been admitted to the Crowbar Hotel yet, like Paul. I hope I don't ever have to spend time behind the bars. But one thing that is not lost on me, and I, I regularly remind my family, especially at the dinner table, is that this church partakes in grace in supporting its pastors. The fact that I've got food on the table is owing to God's work in you to free you up like, this isn't a natural thing to support a pastor who preaches the gospel. That's a supernatural work of God in you. I'm confident for your future that God's going to finish the work because I see God at work in you by your willingness to bear the stigma of being those people or part of that church. You know what I mean? You're unashamed to be people who believe and defend the truth that hell is real. And that what the Bible says about idolaters and homosexuals and unbelievers not inheriting the kingdom of God but eternal destruction is actually true. 
You defend the truth. You're unashamed to believe and defend the word of God when it says that the office of a pastor is for qualified men. You're unashamed and you're eager to defend the truth and to confirm it by your actions that the church is to be a people marked by purity. And so, when it's necessary, sadly, in this world, we actually have to excommunicate people. And we've done that. And you've done that in obedience to Christ, even though maybe family members or friends or certainly the world thinks that you're even oppressive in the things that you're doing. You're unashamed to be identified as those who teach that there is one way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. You're eager to defend the historicity of the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead three days later, and is coming again, regardless of what skeptics say, regardless of what the anti-supernaturalists around you say, regardless of maybe what your family says. You're eager to defend the gospel and to confirm it by putting sin to death, taking up your cross, and following Christ. Brothers and sisters, these are the evidences of God at work in you. And so before I even move on from this point, I think it's actually appropriate too to single out and to give a specific word of thanks and encouragement to the elders and the deacons here. To the elders and deacons. If you think that's unspiritual, you look back at verse 1 and you see that Paul speaks to the saints in Christ Jesus, but he also specifically identifies overseers and deacons the elders and the deacons, the pastors and the deacons. And so to the, my fellow pastors here, some of whom aren't here, I praise God for your faithful partnership in the gospel. I praise God for you helping me mature, for helping shave off some of the rough edges, confronting me of sin, for the joy of partaking in the grace of suffering with you for the gospel. I praise God for the ways that you've modeled that you've modeled how to defend the gospel with boldness and clarity, how to work hard to preserve the unity of the church and even the the witness of this church and its purity, but to do so with compassion for sinners and with a desire that they repent. And to the deacons, I've had the privilege of working with you in lots of different ministries, ministries of mercy. I praise God for the ways that you have helped confirm the gospel by your many hours of work in coordinating ministries of mercy. I I praise God for the way that you confirm the gospel, by the way that you care about even the vulnerable people, the kids and the youth in our church, by ensuring that those who serve in the nursery or serve on welcome team or in these different areas of ministry are actually believers and actually men and women who are trustworthy. I praise God for that. That's evidence of his work in you. I see the wonderful works of God all over this society of saints in Christ, which is why I'm confident then that on the future day of Christ, you'll hear those words, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant, and then you're going to enter into the fullness of the salvation purchased by Christ for you. All this good stuff that Paul has been rehearsing makes me echo also Paul, what he says in verse 8. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's why it's hard to leave. Can you say with God as your witness that you 
yearn and you love the people here next to you with the affection of Christ. That's the kind of community we're aiming for. That's the kind of community that we're praying for, which leads me then to the final encouragement for you this morning. The final thing that I think and feel when you, Calvary Grace, come to mind is this. I feel compelled to pray. I feel compelled to pray for your love to abound within biblical limits and to ask that you pray the same for us. Prayer is one of the ways that God has given to us to even keep gospel partnership alive over distance. Paul was in prison. There was a limitation on his ministry that he could have to the Philippians. He couldn't gather with them. He couldn't sing with them. He couldn't hear the word together with them. He couldn't preach the word to them. But he could pray for them. And so what I want to do is to encourage all of us here to maintain and to dig deep into that partnership through prayer. Let's keep our koinonia kindled through praying for God to give an abounding, an abundance of love, true love, in this congregation. Paul says there, you see it in verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want to commit to praying this for you, this church. And I would ask that you would commit, as we come to mind, to pray for this kind of abounding love with knowledge and discernment, this kind of fruit to be born in us at Grace Cochrane. This abounding love confirms the gospel. In the early church, when Christians were martyred, one, one of the key aspects that aided their apologetics, certainly they needed to defend the truth with words, they had logical argumentation from the scriptures, but one of the ways that aided their apologetics, which was key to confirming the gospel, was their love, was the abundance of love. Unbelievers would look at Christians out there and say, say, see how they love one another. It was an astonishing, unnatural love, a love that could only come through Jesus Christ. Not a love that could be cultivated just by discipline. Not a love that comes from hearts bent on their own sin. A love that comes through Jesus Christ, fruit that is born by him. So pray for an abundance of love, but don't forget to pray that it would be accompanied by some very important things. You see there, Paul says, love. He's, he's praying for love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. That's abounding love within biblical limits. So since it's stampede season, I suppose it's fitting for a horsey illustration, right? The love that glorifies God Maybe this is pushing it, but it's the best I could do. The, the love that glorifies God looks more like the, the response of a roping horse than a wild bronc. A wild bronc, they're all over the place. They're doing their thing, and they, they got literally no limits. They just, they're, they're just trying to get this guy off. They don't want to bring glory to the cowboy. They want to bring glory to them by their bucking. 
They got lots of energy, no control. You can ask Pastor Clint someday how his debut at the Calgary Stampede worked. They got lots of energy, lots of passion, but they're out of control. A roping horse, though, on the other hand, abounds in speed and agility and discipline, but those horses are far more situationally aware. They have a goal in mind. They listen to and they adapt to the commands of the cowboy. They do what is necessary for that cowboy to get the glory when he gets the hooey on the hoof, right? So, so there's, a, a, there's quite a bit of a difference between the two. One out of controlled, doing their own thing for their own sake. Another one, listening to the words of, and, and the movements of the cowboy, that they would reach the goal and bring glory to that cowboy. Love with knowledge and discernment is ordered. It's controlled by knowledge, true knowledge, knowledge that is given to us, knowledge of God in his word. You want to abound in love? Then abound in true knowledge of God. Maybe you feel like your love is sort of like a trickle in July. It's barely there. Well, then I encourage you to be reacquainted with God. Get to know him. Pick up his word. Hear who he is. See his glory and his majesty that is what's going to transform and create an abounding love in us as we behold the love of god in the face of jesus christ that's what's going to make us abound in love my first encounter with calvary grace was through their conferences and so right there i saw that this church was a church that values the knowledge of god revealed in his word we're not anti-intellectual we believe that we're going to glorify god best and love most fervently, if we know God truly. There's no separation between the two. I thank God that the path to becoming a pastor here includes examining elders to see what they know about God because a pastor cannot love well if he doesn't know God. And I believe that this determination to help people grow in the knowledge of God has improved our love and made our church a more compelling community because of it. It's aided our defense and confirmation of the gospel. Knowledge and discretion. What's discretion? Discretion is the ability to understand the truth and how to skillfully apply it in various situations. To abound in love then that glorifies God, we need to grow in our situational awareness. We need to grow in our situational awareness of the context that we live in. To love well means you need to ask questions to seek to arrive at the facts before making a judgment. You've got to assess the condition of the people in front of you that you're seeking to persuade. Are they unbelievers? Are they angry? Are they weak in faith? Are they lazy? Are they confused? Are they hurt? And then you bring a remedy of the truth and customized service for those people. You see, the principles laid down in God's word are universal. But the application of them needs to take into consideration the context. That's discretion. And discernment also means growing in self-awareness. How, how are you being received? What do people perceive of you? Perceptions can certainly be wrong, but it's wise and an act of love on your part to ask things like, what about me makes it difficult for people to be around? What about me is suffocating people's joy? Put simply, when your name comes up in someone's mind or in conversation, what would people think and feel about you? 
would they say, I love being with them. They're encouraging. They're patient. They're wise and knowledgeable, but not arrogant. They've encouraged me and helped me grow. They always point to Christ and make much of him and less of themselves. They serve at cost to themselves. I have many good reasons to believe that God is at work in them. That's love. That's abounding. Or would people say about you and feel things like, I don't trust them. They're a killjoy. They just... They just snuff it out everywhere it goes. They focus on everything that's wrong and everybody around them rather than first thanking God for, those, for the work that he's doing in them. They seem to think like they're God's special gift of the conscience to the church and to the pastors because they criticize everything. They're not really invested in church, but they've got lots of opinions. These are the people who need to grow in discernment, in self-awareness, as to how they are hurting people rather than serving them in love. We need discernment. Maybe another illustration of would help, discernment. Yesterday we celebrated, uh, there was a couple weddings celebrated, the Haller night wedding, and the, f- the food was great, thanks to Marion. But after the, uh, after the reception, I climbed into the van, and the first thing I reached for was a piece of floss. Because I've got this big crater in the back of my tooth. And this is a little bit disgusting for everybody, I know. But just, just hold on here. I'm getting to the point. I carry floss around with me everywhere I go. And Julie was so proud of me. She was so proud of me that I didn't pull out my floss at the wedding. It showed self-control. It showed some discernment, right? Because there's a time to floss, and there's a time not to floss. You don't go there flossing when everybody's enjoying the meal, right? Discernment is living with situational awareness and self-awareness. So love with this kind of knowledge and discernment. The truth doesn't change, but the application of the truth does in terms of pace and timing and approach. How do we know if we're loving with knowledge and discernment? Well, there's going to be fruit. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love with knowledge and discernment approves what is excellent. And the implication of that then is that it disapproves of what is not excellent, of what is not superior, of what is not in accordance with God's own excellencies, his own nature. A love that accepts everything and rejects nothing is not love. Love is marked by purity and blamelessness. On the the day of Christ, there will be evidence before you, the fruit of purity and blamelessness. Certainly you'll stand before God in the purity and blamelessness of Christ, but there's also going to be real fruit, what what Paul says is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now you'll notice here, just as we conclude, the Apostle Paul, he's pointed to a specific day twice. What he calls the day of Jesus Christ, you see in verse 6, and then in verse 10, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It's the day when Jesus returns, when all of his enemies are put under his feet, when the final judgment occurs, and when his people, those whom he saved, enter into the fullness of of their reward. You've heard it said, all good things come to an end. Not so for the believer. 
Not so for the believer. Paul evidently wants our partnership to be shaped by a preparation for this most important day. Faithful friends and partners in the gospel are great gifts. And sometimes there are temporary interruptions to our fellowship and friendship. A person moves. A saint dies. A sin disrupts a friendship. But on the day of Jesus Christ, God will finish the work he's begun in us. On that day, the evidence of his work in us will be there. We'll be found pure and blameless. We'll enter into the fullness of our reward. On that day, he'll transform us. And our friendship and fellowship will be marked by, an, by a love that matches his. He'll transform us into a perfect society of saints. See, Paul's not unrealistic. He celebrates God's grace at work in these Philippians, but he's not unrealistic. It's not a perfect church, and neither are you, neither is Grace Cochran. But the hope and what we look forward to is the day of Jesus Christ when the work is complete. And when that work is complete, all that disrupts and interrupts our friendship and fellowship in the gospel will be over. Heaven, as Jonathan Edwards said, is a world of love. That's where we're headed, brothers and sisters. And so in the meantime, let's commit to our partnership in prayer, praying that our love would grow closer to this kind of abounding love that we will share together in fellowship with Christ and with all the saints in Christ Jesus. Calvary Grace Church, I thank God for you. And I'm confident in your future and I'm committed to praying for you. Will you commit to praying for us as well? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fellowship of the saints. I thank you for Jesus Christ who purchased us from sin and darkness and selfishness and has brought us together. And I pray that our love would abound more and more, that we would be a people who approve what is excellent, who are filled with the fruit of righteousness, who are marked by purity and blamelessness, even as we await and long for the day of Christ. Would you hasten that day that we might enter into the fullness of all that you have promised and secured for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand and let's respond in song together. As you go, hear this word from Jude as a doxology and benediction, a blessing for you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. Go in peace. You're dismissed.